Plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Our guest this week played one of the most lovable characters of all time, certainly to me at least. And when you think of the most lovable TV characters of all time, I'm thinking Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince, Phil Dumfries from Modern Family, Del Boy, obviously, maybe even Joey from Friends. But Samuel Tarly from Game of Thrones, Jon Snow's best friend, the man who killed the White Walker before anyone else. And even that adorable relationship with Gilly, he is one of my favourite characters ever. Um, and we've got the man himself, the man who played Samuel Tarly, John Bradley. So Fran and I were really excited to chat to John about his own career and plot twists in his life. And uh, he's got two films out, the first of which is Moonfall, a new universal film which is out in cinemas now. Now imagine the moon has been knocked off its orbit and it's heading towards Earth. And you need some people to save the day. Well, John Bradley with Halle Berry and Patrick Wilson are those guys. Um, so if you like films like Independence Day, end of the world sort of thriller, this is definitely your bag. And then the next film, slightly different, a bit more of a rom-com, which is perfect for Valentine's Day coming up. You've got Marry Me with rom-com royalty, really, J-Lo and Owen Wilson. Um, very lighthearted, good fun. And John Bradley plays J-Lo's manager, which will be interesting to talk about. He, he's been working with a lot of big stars lately. So we need to we need to work out what that was like. That's, uh, that's all, a lot in one go. So really excited to chat to, to John about those projects. And we've got to talk about Game of Thrones. And I'm personally pretty interested to hear his take actually on the prequel, House of the Dragon, which is coming later this year. And it will be on now. So here is the man himself, John Bradley on Plot Twist. I tell you what, if there's two things that I know right now, it's 2022 and John Bradley is killing it. You've had a pretty strong start to the year, sir. It sort of feels like it, doesn't it? It's a bit of a strange one because it's been very COVID affected and it feels like I've got a sense of momentum from somewhere. But in actual fact, the two movies that I've got out at the moment, Moonfall, which is out on the 4th of February and Marry Me, which is out on the 11th of February, they're out a week apart, but they were filmed a whole year apart. Marry Me was in... Um, at the end of 2019 and Moonfall was the end of 2020. And just because of Blimey. the pandemic, the, the the release of Marry Me has been kept back a few times because they wanted to do it in theatres and cinemas. They didn't want to do a exclusive streaming deal on it. And yeah, they're just coming out at the same time. But Marry Me especially feels like a lifetime ago. I find it so weird actually that you can sort of tell that a pandemic happened in between them because in Marry Me, I sort of look... For me, half decent. Well, you know, a quarter decent <laughs> compared to compared to how it usually is. And then Moonfall, it's back to the same old story as it always was. Oh, so, stop it. so it, it took a sort of uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I just managed to sneak in, marry me in my uh, glory years pre-pandemic, and then Moonfall, all bets are off again. Sorry, sorry, general <laughs> public. <laughs> I do have to ask something that's worrying me a bit, though, John, because. 
I read that what inspired you to become an actor was that you wanted to meet Jerry Halliwell and yeah. maybe the moment you meet her, you might decide to retire. Now, I feel with all the success that's come your way, are you close to meeting her? Has it been set up? You know, we don't want to lose you from the yeah, acting I don't think scene. you should. I don't think you should. It, does, it doesn't feel any closer now than it ever has been. I mean, oh. because I've, I've met some of the Spice Girls. I've met some of the Spice Girls. I met Emma Bunton at the BBC in Salford a few years ago, and that was uh, that, that was as close as I've got. That was a thrill, but it's, it's still Jerry all the way for me. And, you know, the, the, thing about, the, the thing about that, you know, when I look back on it, it, it's just, it's one of those things where it's sort of indicative of what a closed shop acting and entertainment and all that kind of stuff felt to me when I was a little kid because I wanted to meet Jerry Halliwell more than anything else in Who the world. Who doesn't know? Yeah, exactly, right? Especially then. <laughs> I, I could, Because all of my sort of closest friends when I was that age, they were all girls. I didn't really have a lot of male friends when I was a little kid. And when other kids were trading football stickers we used to buy these you could buy e envelopes of pictures of the spice girls for a pound from your news agents <laughs> and you could swap them so with all my with all my i say girlfriends they dispute that but they were you know female <laughs> young friends that were children at the time as was i i should say we, that, that was our that was our currency trading spice girl pictures and i remember just thinking so how can i meet jerry halliwell how can i do it I, i've got to be, i've got to become an actor. That's the only way I can possibly do it. So I did it with that in mind. And the fact that we're talking to each other now lets you know that it hasn't happened yet. Oh, well, no, I was going to say, well, it shows that you set off to be an actor and you've done pretty well there. But I think for our sake, we're happy that the meet and greet hasn't yet occurred. So if we can just keep kicking that can down the road, that would be great. Yeah, don't retire. Okay, be, okay, good to know. Great. I mean, okay, if you were okay. to meet her, maybe you'd go uh, to an F1 track. She's married to Christian Horner, who's behind the Red Bull racing team, maybe that might be the way to do it. You know, go down Silverstone. At... Seems like, yeah, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i I'm basically willing to do anything. I'm still 100% <laughs> willing to do anything. I'm I, I'm not the biggest fan of F1, but I've, I've I've pretended to like other stuff to to make girls fall in love with me in the past. To, but I've never, I've never said varying levels of success, but there's not much variation to it with, uh, with, with, with minimal, with, with zero to minimal success, I'd say. But I'm, yeah, I'm willing to do anything it takes. You mentioned there about being willing to do anything. And as you say, Marry Me is coming out and it's around Valentine's Day. Would you say that you are a romantic at heart? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I, I, think I definitely am. And I, I think, you know, it took me a while to blossom into that because, you know, I was quite mm. a self-conscious kid and I was quite an anxious kid. And I remember, you know, hearing... It's only when I have fallen in love in you know relatively recent years that all love songs start to make sense. You know what I mean, you hear a lot of love songs when you're a little oh. kid and you like them and you think and you think, oh yeah, that's a really nice song. But and I sort of know what love is conceptually, but it's only when that happens to you that you hear songs and you just be like, oh yeah, I totally get that now. And it took me a while to to feel like that, but now I do feel like a romantic person. I'm I'm making up for lost time. You know, Marry Me in itself, it's it's a great analogy for that thing of, you know, you can have a team of people around you, you can have fans around you, you can have work colleagues around you, but as soon as you meet that one person, you'd swap them all for for that one person. And I think that that's, that's, the, that's the message of Marry Me. And 
yeah, I, I think for a Valentine's movie, it fits that mould perfectly, I think. What's uh, what, what's the secret? Because uh, I'm in my early 30s, John, still trying to find the one. <laughs> you appear, from what I can see, very happy. What's the secret behind that? What's the, what's the deal? Because anything you've got, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Um, I think one thing that we find it hard to do as human beings because we all have a lot of self-doubt about us and we all think that we're that we're not enough and people are looking for something but they're not really looking for us. I think the secret is to be prepared to be completely honest about yourself from the very first moment. Don't try and mm. don't try and be something that you're not necessarily because you'll never be able to keep it up. I'm 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 doing a couple of movies. I'm not a good enough actor to pretend to be perfect all the time. You know what I mean? I, I think the more honest you are at the start, the less pressure there is to pretend to be perfect all the time. And then the person, whoever it is, they'll accept you for your, you know, failures and as well as your your strengths. There's a great quote, I can't remember where it comes from, there's a great quote that says, I know your faults and love you still. And I think I think that that's, that's sort of what my, my way of thinking about it is. If you're just honest, then you're never going to let them down. And, they'll, and mm. they'll, they'll accept you as a complete package. I think it took me a while to to come to that conclusion because I was a bit like, well, who sort of, who, nobody probably wants me as I am. I've got to pretend to be something else. And then the more you do that, no, I'm not, I'm not giving it for, for sympathy. Which is, everybody feels that to some extent, I think, but mm. you, you overcome, you yeah, overcome yeah, that do. one day. Yeah, you overcome that one day and then you're like, oh no, actually, I'm sort of all right. I'm sound as a pound. I think as well, almost the moment that you have that where you're like, I'm actually fine with who I am and take it or leave it. A lot of the time, that's when people end up meeting someone that's the right person for them because they're not, like you say, trying to fit into a box for someone else or trying to be something that they're not. Exactly. I think that that's where the pressure comes from because you find yourself, you know, the pressure builds within you when you're when you're denying a lot of your frustrations and you don't let some of your less, less appealing, as far as you're concerned character traits out and you think you have to be perfect all the time nobody can live up to that and you've made a promise to somebody that you can't keep necessarily and I think that's where a lot of that mm. frustration comes from so just like just sort of accept that you can be imperfect and still be loved you can still you can be imperfect objectively but still be the perfect person for somebody despite that oh I love that yeah it's lovely um Something else I want to ask you, John, I suppose it also related to Marry Me is this sort of notion of fame. And there is this juxtaposition between Jennifer Lopez's character, she's this music star versus Owen Wilson, who's a music teacher, and they end up getting married at first sight. And there is that sort of adaptation almost to fame. And the thing that was really interesting about you and your story is that reading that you finish university in 2010, finish at Manchester Met, and then within a year, you're into that a colossal series that's Game of Thrones. What was what was that like for you in terms of adapting to to fame and and everything that kind of goes with that, especially in your in your young twenties? Yeah, it was a it was a weird experience, and you know I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't it wasn't a, a slightly strange experience. But when when I first got the part, all my friends at home were really pleased to me it felt like and there was a lot of when I told them I got the part straight out of drama school it was my first audition I'd only been out a couple of I, I, the first audition for it was while I was still at drama school and then I started filming like two months after I left and 
The thing about that was they were like, oh, this is going to be... We didn't know it was going to be the biggest show in the world, but they were like, oh, you've got into an HBO show. That's so great. That's so impressive. Mm. We're really pleased for you. This is going to be the start of a career, fingers crossed. And then what happened was when it came to filming the actual first day, all of that went away and you're suddenly left alone doing a job that you don't necessarily feel Mm. that prepared for. And then it's all about justifying the faith that the people in charge have put in you and not letting them down. And it came it came with a certain amount of professional pressure before there was any sort of pressure of fame. It was about, oh, you think I can play this part in this show? And now I, my friends have gone. They don't seem to be anywhere. There's no arms around me anymore. I've got to prove you were right. And so that brought its own pressure, really. And, you know, I you know got off to a a reasonably slow start in Game of Thrones in terms of I wasn't one of the characters that was right at the very centre of it from the very first moment. People like Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark, they'd done very little before Game of Thrones too, especially of that level. Mm. It, was, it mm. was the first thing that they'd got. But the, the thing about them was they were instantly the leads. They were instantly the faces of the show and had all of the eyes of the world on them. But what was great about my character was started off quite peripheral, started off in that sort of sidekick role and very much, you know, very much Jon Snow's and Kit's right-hand man. And then as the series went on, became more prominent and got his own storyline over the over the course of the series. And that's when I was sort of gradually introduced to the idea of fame, but also gradually introduced to the idea of, you know, leading scenes and leading a storyline. So it was a much, I was much more capable to learn on the job without the sort of magnitude of all that pressure being on me from day one, really. So I had a sort of, I had a very comfortable journey and very, very sort of sort of promotion through the ranks of that show that felt organic. And every little step, I felt like I was able to make it when I, when I did make it. And, but, you know, even on that, there were still people who just did not watch it. And I think that that's one thing, it's a certain type of fame, isn't it, where people who love that show really loved it and would come up to you and talk about really it. Really love it. Mm. Really love it. But if they don't watch it, they just don't know you at all. It's not like being in <laughs> sort of a show like Coronation Street, for example, or, you know, a show a mm. show like that that's wildly popular where people where you're sort of tabloid fodder and people know you whether they watch the show or not. It was, it was Game of Thrones was like the biggest cult show in the world where most of the time it was fine and you were left alone and the only people you've spoken to were people who were really passionate about your work and the show and in terms of striking the balance that's that I couldn't have asked for for more than that really and now looking back on that time how does it feel to reflect on it because we had Maisie Williams on the podcast and it was really interesting because the series had just ended and we'd actually just gone into sort of the lockdown And she was saying that it really took her some time after it ended to like acclimatise to what actually happened. Because when she was in it, you kind of, you're in the wheels are in motion and you're like living it day to day. But actually it was only once it ended, did she look back on it and kind of realise the gravitas of that experience? Yeah, I feel a little bit like that, but I don't think any of us are going to feel it in quite the same way as Sophie, Maisie and Isaac did. Because, I mean, for me, the Game of Thrones was my 20s, which is a a formative decade in itself. It was my entire 20s. But they Mm. went from children into adults 
in very much the public gaze and right at the center of this of this you know global phenomenon and you know that brings its own pressures to it and you know it, it sometimes feel like you've been in a tunnel and when you went into the tunnel they were children and when you come out the other side of the tunnel they were adults all of a sudden so of course they're going to they're going to look back on it with a certain degree of a certain degree of uh, reflection in terms of you know, what they were before they went in, what may have happened to them or not happened to them if they hadn't found that show. Of course, they're going to be a bit more philosophical about it. I sort of felt that as well. And I also sort of felt that, you know, because I came from not an acting background and I thought I, I, I'd not necessarily fluked my way into it, but I just thought oh, certain things aligned in the right way for me that meant I was in part of this show... Part of me was a bit like, I don't think lightning's going to strike twice. I just can't see anybody taking a, the same kind of chance on me again. I just thought, I didn't think my career was over, over, but I just thought I'm never going to get back to that level again. And I was perfectly willing to never scale those heights again or ever be in anything like that. And that lasted for a year. I didn't work for a whole year on, in any meaningful way after it ended because I was looking for something that wasn't comparable to it, but also... My confidence took a massive hit and, you know, that that the horrible cycle happened of, you know, lack of confidence and, and the less the less confident you become because you're not working, the less you feel you can work when it does come around. It's it's a weird I was turning down auditions. I was turning down auditions because I didn't think I'd get them, because my confidence was so low because I hadn't worked. You know what I mean? It's a sort of awful self-perpetuating cycle. Circle, and, isn't it? Yeah, vicious circle. And then, in the middle of all that, my agent got a phone call one day and said, uh, Jennifer Lopez is doing a movie uh, towards the end of the year. Would would, would you like to... As you I, do. And I was, I, I, was, I was a bit like... I was a bit like, oh, do you know what? I my, my sort of confidence is so in the gutter at the moment. I just don't think I'll get it if I audition for it. So, because that's the way your sort of mind works. And they said, no, it's... It's an offer. They just want you to. They want you to do it. There's no audition needed. And I was just like, no way. That's just can't possibly happen. So, you know, I've no matter what happens to me in the future and other stuff that I've got done, I'll always be so grateful to Jennifer and to Elaine Goldsmith Thomas and the other producers on that because they don't know it and they don't have to know it, but they really sort of did wonders for my confidence in that in that quite sort of rocky time and after that it felt like a reset and I was back in the game again but yeah it was a, it was it was just funny old year that funny old year I think that time in your 20s and 30s I think generally for a lot of people it your confidence does fluctuate doesn't it? it always will go up and down for different reasons and you're still finding yourself aren't you but um I mean look working with Jennifer Lopez Halle Berry in the moonfall Roland Emmerich film, <laughs> big production. I mean, that's going to build up your confidence. Um, and I want to talk to you about that. But before we do, John, I've got to ask you a plot twist question. And okay. we may have perhaps covered over that. But obviously in TV and film, we experience plot twists in, in different forms. But even for us as individuals, we, you know, we have our own plot twists in our own lives. What for you, John Bradley, would represent your biggest plot twist? It was the moment where... And I spoke about this before, but it's such a defining moment. The big plot twist in my life would be the moment where after years of 
thinking that you're not going to get anywhere because you're overweight and because of the sort of way you look and because of, um, you, you know, you look at actors and you think, oh, nobody really looks like me. I, I don't think that I'm going to, I'm ever going to get a seat at that table. And you get more, more and more down about it and that's another vicious circle. What a plot twist it is that one day there are a couple of genius writers, producers in Hollywood who go, oh, no, that thing that you hate, that's what we want. Exactly what we're looking for. You're exactly what we're looking for. And all the time that you you wanted to be something else, you were perfect for us. And all that time when I was down about myself, they were looking for me and they found me. And I was perfect for their, that thing again. I was I was perfect for them as I was. And they, and they taught me all about my own sort of self-worth and uh, accepting myself. And, and yeah... What a twist that is, that the one thing that you want to change about yourself was the one thing that was the key to everything being better. Feels like a plot mm. twist to me. It really does. I think it's just really lovely, actually. We should all love ourselves, really, and what we are and what we represent, whatever form we do take. I think that's uh, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, because, you know, you know every, everyone's got something about themselves that they don't like. You can look at oh, other, people, other people and think that they, they don't have any self-doubt at all, but we all do, and... And, you know, it's just about sort of accepting that even though you don't necessarily sometimes don't feel you're worth that much, you're worth that much to somebody else. You're priceless to somebody else. And whether that be whatever job you do or whether that be in in your personal relationship or whether that be to your family, you're worth something to somebody else. So try and remember what you mean to other people if sometimes you don't mean that much to yourself. It's sort of a of universal lesson that my happen my happens to be about my weight and about acting and stuff but I think that it can be applied to life in general I'm sure it can I wonder what that younger version of yourself would be saying about the fact that you've got two massive movies to be <laughs> released in the next <laughs> couple of weeks that we're interviewing oh, I don't you know. for <laughs> yeah I don't know I remember I remember watching one Christmas Eve probably about 25 years ago or something I remember watching Independence Day with my dad at home, yeah. If if you'd have told me then that I'd be doing a movie with the director of that, I, I sort of wanted to be an actor in some sort of peripheral, conceptual way. Never th- I th- hoped I'd make a career out of it, but didn't think about you know being involved with projects of this scale. If you'd have told me when I was ten that I'd be directed by the director who's directing Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum as you know, alien space, you blow up the White House, cut to 25 years later and I'm in a movie like that, I'd have just never believed you in a million years. I mean, we talk, let's, let's talk about Moonfall because it is this, obviously, this big budget production. As you mentioned, Roland Emmerich, he is a, he's almost an auteur, isn't he? He's the master of this kind of genre where the world is on the brink of collapse, stunning visually, and there's usually a few brave people that are on a mission to try and save the world, of which... Uh, <laughs> You're you know, one of you them. You are one. You are one of yeah. them. Yeah. That that must have been. I mean, the cast and the whole setup. It must have been a pretty awesome experience. It was, and you know, something something that a lot of people say about Roland is, you know, he makes the same movie a lot, and he, you know, a lot of the same tropes are present in a lot of those movies. But what he is is he's an expert, and very rarely in your life do you get to work with an expert who, you know, nobody can tell Roland anything. Nobody can give him any pointers whatsoever about destroying the earth because he does it he does it better than anybody else. And 
on the reg. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and what that, what that, that, that's one thing to work with an expert. But when you go, when you get there and you find that he's still kept so much passion and retained so much enthusiasm and he's not jaded and he's not cynical and he's not complacent, he still wants to make the best movie that he possibly can and sort of refine what he does down to its purest elements time and time again. And I remember hearing a, a quote from, it was probably Keith Richards, it was one of the Rolling Stones, and they said, well, why do you still do it? After all these years, why do you still do it? And he said, well, every time we start a show, we want that to be the best one. And I feel that with mm. Roland as well. Every Every time he plots blowing up the world again, he wants that to be the sort of apex of his mastery of that particular genre. And I don't know if Moonfall is that, but on the day it felt like he's more ambitious than he's ever really been before because he's he's dealt with a lot of planet Earth stuff and huge landmarks getting wiped out and all of those classic Emmerich tropes that he invented. But with this one, <laughs> he got to design the inside of the moon as well, which is something that nobody's got any frame of reference where do you to. begin with that? Exactly. Where do you even begin with that? Where, where do you even begin? It's complete carte blanche. <laughs> how, how do you react to being in the moon? Because that's <laughs> yeah, the thing. I mean, for a bit of context for listeners, we should say some force has knocked the moon off its orbit. And then you and the team, you're actually a conspiracy theorist, easy for me to say. And you end up going in space to try and sort out this problem. But you actually go inside the moon. <laughs> yeah. Inside the moon, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> because it's it's such a difficult thing to do that. It really is because I've done green screen stuff before and I've done VFX stuff before, but on Game of Thrones it was always something like, oh, you're looking out over these castle battlements and you're seeing thousands of thousands of figures, thousands of men, whether they be white walkers or whatever, you're seeing thousands of people heading towards you. Conceptually, you sort of have in your mind what a thousand people looks like. And you can sort of, yeah, in your mind's eye, you can come up with something. But the inside of the moon, I mean, I mean, I, one thing I'd love to know is what Halle and Halle Berry, who's also in the movie, and Patrick Wilson, I'd love for all of us to get together and share what we were trying to picture during those scenes because I bet they're so vastly different. And they're nothing yeah. like it's actually turned out either. <laughs> when I saw the movie, I was a bit like... Oh, that's nothing like I imagined, but this is the reason why Roland's been allowed to direct this movie and not me, because if I if I if my vision of the inside of the moon was on the big screen, I don't think it'd be anywhere near as impressive. Well, no I way. mean, the very premise of the film, though, is that you guys are in this sort of race against time to sort of save the Earth and whatnot. But would you say you're someone who is calm under pressure? Could you channel a bit of yourself into that character? Or are you a bit more like me, who is awful under pressure and I would crumble and that would be it. The earth would be exploded and, and we'd be done. I think that the best thing that can be said about me and my attitude to pressure and pressured situations is I'm realistic enough to know when I can do something about it and when I can't. Mm. And if I can't, I'm not going to try. I think I, I think the, <laughs> the best thing, if the moon was heading to Earth. Somebody asked me the other day, what would I do if the moon was heading to Earth? I'd say, the biggest favour I could do for the planet is to just stay out of it. Just don't even <laughs> just don't even get involved in it. Just, just let the people who are experts in it, let them do their job. I, I, I respect that they're trying their best, but I'm not going to get involved at all. So my attitude to pressure is, if I can change it, 
I'll try. And if I can't, I'm just going back to bed. Just take a step back, let the others take a load off. Yeah. We've got um, another plot twist question for you, but before we get on to that, I just wanted to read you a little quote from Roland Emmerich that I found in an interview, because watching the trailer, your character, again, although it is this sort of sci-fi disaster film, brings this sort of warmth and humour into the plot. And what he said was that the movie is a fun movie and it's a fun movie because it's got John Bradley in it. And I just thought that was lovely. Yeah, what a lovely thing to say. (laughs) Oh, bless him. That's really made my day. I mean, yeah, it goes back to when I was a little kid again. That You know, we, we weren't from a theatrical family. We, we didn't go to the theatre. We didn't watch drama on telly. Even. We didn't even really watch films. We just watched comedy on like, sitcoms, all the classic, you know, Only Fools and Horses and, you know, One Foot in the Grave and all the ones that people of our sort of generation coming from this country, what we grew up with. And before I knew I wanted to be an actor or before I knew what an actor was, I used to watch these films and I used to watch Laurel and Hardy in particular and just think, oh, I don't know what they're doing, but I want to make other people feel the way they're making me Mm. feel when I watch them. And, you know, in these days when acting has become suddenly a very worthy profession and a lot of people talk about oh well I what I get from it and how hard they work and you know how artistically fulfilled I was playing this part I think the audience gets forgotten about sometimes I think people forget that they're in service to an audience and if the audience aren't entertained then you've not done your job and and even in the sort of darkest and the most serious dramas I'd like to find a way of entertaining an audience if I possibly can because I think it's an overlooked priority and I think it's still quite important. That's what makes us human though, isn't it? That's what I I think in any situation in life that humour can actually just dissolve a situation however disastrous it may be. Yeah, yeah, humour, because you, you have to care about the characters at the heart of the destruction, otherwise you won't care that the destruction's happening. And a shortcut <laughs> to make people care about you is to make them smile. As soon as you make them smile... There's a connection between you. And I've often said that in real serious drama and real serious peril, it's not humour doesn't detract from the drama. It, it adds to it when it's done liberally and economically. It can it can heighten the the tragedy and heighten the jeopardy. It doesn't necessarily compromise it in any way. Mm. And it's funny you talk about that you were entertained as a child and that inspired you. And it's actually incredible how many people we've spoken to on this podcast who have said exactly the same thing, which is they wanted to give people the gift Mm. that they had been given when they were younger and and they were watching people on TV. It's amazing how many times that comes up. Yeah, it's really important. And that's the thing that can be said for Moonfall and, you know, for a lot of movies, a lot of people say, oh, you know, the thing about Roland's movies is, you know, I was sitting there thinking oh, well, that doesn't scientifically make any sense. The science, the established laws of physics mean that that would be impossible. And I'm like, so? Yeah, it's not really... It's It's a movie. It's it's not really for scientists. It's for people (laughs) who work incredibly hard all week and they've got a few quid in their pocket once they've paid their bills and they want to go out and and take their mind off stuff. They don't want to be thinking about science when they're watching it. They want to have a good time, hopefully, and there's nothing wrong with giving people that and moonfall there are some deeper elements to it and some messages if you want to look for them and you've got a mind that looks for those kind of things but if you don't want to look for that then 
you just come along and you can have some fun. It's no less worthy and it's no less essential to just try and give people a good time, I don't think. And well, you mentioned there about sort of inspiring people that you saw on screen. And I know that we've already covered Jerry Halliwell off in the opener, so I'm sorry that we're probably <laughs> yeah. going to have to remove her from this question. Um, but the other big question that we like to ask from a plot twist perspective is, has there been anyone personally, like a person who has influenced you in an unexpected way or that people would be surprised to know was an influence on your life or your career? OK, OK, I'll tell you who it is. I'm going to put two people together here that Ooh. not many people would expect to be put together, but I think that they both have performed a similar sort of function in my understanding of things. And they are Paul McCartney is one of them. And believe it or not, Sean Paul is the other one. A hundred percent true, because I think what Sean Paul and Paul McCartney do is they'll always find ways of phrasing a line of melody which takes it to a surprising place that you'd never expect it to go. There are so many examples where you listen to a Sean Paul song or you listen to a Paul McCartney song and you think you can guess the way that the melody line is going to end because of mm. so many melodies you heard in the past. And the pair of them will introduce a note to it or a chord to it or a little bit of phrasing where you go, oh, never expected that in a million years. And it really wakes you up and it, it, it's... It makes you really properly listen to it. And, you know, those little changes where they just do it all ever they can to make their songs not boring and to make them interesting and to make them so much better than they really need to be. And I find that when I look at a script and I see a line, I always say to myself, oh, there's, a, there's an obvious way that you can say that, like a naturalistic way. But if you give it a slight twist or a slight pause somewhere or an inflection that's ever so slightly wrong or ever so slightly colourful, or doesn't quite play Against into a natural, naturalistic beat, it really makes it sing like a piece of music. So quite often, I'll discard the obvious way to say something and look for a way that's not obvious, but still performs a role, a function within the scene, but it's just a little bit heightened and just a little bit out of the ordinary. And, you know... Those two and musicians who do that, they, um, yeah, they've really inspired me to do that, to just not settle for the easiest option, to look for something a little bit more colourful and a little bit more interesting. And, yeah, I think they both do that. They're, they're a combo that you wouldn't put together necessarily, but I think they've, they've got more in common with their... <laughs> I love that you have, though. ...in a songwriting approach. Sean Paul is a vastly underrated musical technician, I think. There's so many examples mm. I could go into, but I'd have to play them to you and then I'd get very theoretical about <laughs> you could it. You sing and then, them if you want. Then, you know, we're open to no, a I, bit of singing on the podcast. Like the That's the thing. I could sing them in theory if I wanted to, <laughs> but I can't, I can't sing them in practice. But you just have one to... One for another time. To, yeah, you'll have to just trust me on that one. But it is, it is true and it's, it's genuinely my, my approach to it when, I, when I'm preparing for my work. No, I like that. Certainly we'll put those two together, but I can get that. And also, I guess it's what makes everything original, doesn't it? In terms of how you take on a script and perform it and how they put their music across. Um, just before we, we wrap up, John, I want to ask you one very quick thing. I know you're very fond of Game of Thrones and fond of Samuel Tarly and that character. Obviously, later this year, there's going to be a prequel, House of the Dragon. Are you excited yeah. for that? It's on your watch list. That's something that you're going to be uh, tuning in for on the first night. I'm really excited for it. 
But, you know, there is a part of you and a part of all of us who are involved in Game of Thrones where there's going to be something a bit bittersweet about it as well, I think. It's going mm. to feel like, oh, time's moved on and the brand has moved on without us. It's going to be a little bit like, you know, when you move house and you drive past your old house and you see other people in there and they've changed it and they've redecorated and the it, 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 you recognise it, but it looks it's very different and it's a symptom of, you know, your the temporary nature of life that stuff mm. moves on without you. So I, I, I know Miguel Sapochnik, who's in charge of it, he's directed a lot of our best episodes. I know members of the cast, so I know it's in very, very good hands and I hope it's going to be a success. And I'm sure it will be, but yeah, there'll be a little bit of bittersweet edge to it. And But it, it's weird how the continuation goes on because I'm making a show at the moment with Benioff and Weiss. I'm filming their new show it's called Three Body Problem. So Amazing. it's just a weird, a weird thing that as as if that's a really ambitious show as well, and I really hope it's a success for them because I just think that you know they've been given a bit of a rough ride in the last few years, and I'd love to see them get back to where they deserve to be in terms of people's opinion of them. And yes, it's, it's weird that just as House of the Dragon is starting and it feels like Game of Thrones Mark One is becoming to an end, my journey with it in a way is continuing because I get to work with the people who rescued that slightly. Mm. Mm. Uh, I say slightly that 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 boy who was you know confounded by self doubt. They're still finding ways to keep him going and still giving him opportunities, and I'll be grateful to them for for the rest of my life. Well, I look forward to seeing those. Yeah, that was really lovely. Um, but in the meantime, good luck with the two films. We've got Moonfall coming out on the 4th of Feb, is that right? 4th of Feb, yep. 4th of Feb and uh, Marry Me on the 11th of Feb. So um, two different types of films. So for film lovers, there's a bit of variation there, but lots of John Bradley, which we all need in our lives. So thank you oh, so very much. Nice. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Joy. My pleasure. My pleasure. Lovely to speak to you both. Thank you. Big, big thank you to John Bradley. What an amazing guest. And I tell you what, I said before, he's played one of my favorite characters ever in Samuel Tarly. I think he might be one of my, my favorite human beings ever. He was just such a lovely, considered, warm guy. He was absolutely brilliant. And it's quite incredible, isn't it? That he's done all these different projects, a colossal series in Game of Thrones. And then obviously these two massive movies, Moonfall and, and Marry Me. Uh, different genres as well and there is still this almost an element of doubt it's like how could you doubt yourself you know from our perspective when you look at him he's just been so talented and so ready-made for these roles it was that was a really interesting part of the interview and it's super honest there was me kidding around about you know dating advice and then he just gave me the most thoughtful considered answer um <laughs> so i appreciate that as a single man john and also just his general his general story and, and the plot twist element Obviously, he mentions his own doubts, but as we said, to finish at university and then within the space of a year, he's already on Game of Thrones. It's quite an incredible turnaround. And basically, this acting malarkey is obviously a walk in the park for the man because um, he's that talented, but super humble with it. So I don't want to make light of that. He really was. 
But yes, there's two films, Moonfall and Marry Me. Moonfall out in cinemas now and Marry Me will be in cinemas from the 11th of February. So again, a big thank you to John Bradley. And next time on Plot Twist, we have got a corker. And we're actually a really interesting discussion around the premise of fear with Josh Hartnett, of all people, who has a new show on now called The Fear Index. So we're going to talk to him about that. Really looking forward to that. So make sure you're subscribed and we'll see you next time. Ciao.